Uh, Father, we thank you for your life-giving words. Thank you for the chance to sit here, uh, to be thinking uh, with the help of your Spirit. Please help us to listen well. Please help us to learn well. That we might see more of who you are and what you are committed to doing in this world. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm reading from Genesis chapter 49, verse 29. Okay. Uh, it starts with the words of Jacob, or otherwise known as Israel. Uh, these are his final words to his 12 sons. And then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he dropped his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph, one of his sons, fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favour in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father with him. When all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the morning on the threshing floor of Atar, they said, This is a grievous morning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Memre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did, that we did to him. 
So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. I want you to imagine with me that you're sitting comfortably in your armchair. It's drizzling outside. The weather is nice and comfy. You have a cup of hot chocolate or, or coffee in your hand, and you're about to write a letter for the future generations, those who, who will be born in the days to come. Now, in 2023 Singapore, life's pretty okay. For some, things are even rosy. But no one will be spared the effects of this rotten world. There will be dark tunnels, deep pits, dreadful things like human evil and death. Because this is a post-Genesis 3 world, our world is fractured and broken because humans rebel against God, our Creator. But in Genesis, God has a royal promise a kingly promise to turn this rotten world around. That's basically the summary of the book of Genesis. A royal promise for a rotten world. It begins in Genesis and unfolds into eternity. It's a great, it's a desperately needed promise, but it won't be easy to keep trusting God for what He has says, uh, said. Because life keeps on plunging into the shadows of evil and valleys of death. And when that happens in the days to come, God's great promise will seem far and small. So you are about to write a letter to future generations for people who live in a world that God made good but has gone very wrong. You want them to be supremely confident. 
You want them to be completely assured in God and His promise. So what will you write? What will you say to them about the future in this letter? Our text today will give us some answers, I think. But first, this is the story so far. Again, if you look at the table, you see that today's text, today's reading, is part of the section on the generations of Jacob. Can you see Jacob's name all the way far right? Uh, this is a section that spans chapters 37 to 50. And this section itself, this small section, is part of the bigger Genesis story. Jacob and his family, like every one of God's people, they are under this royal world-restoring promise. God will grow them into a great nation. God will give them a home that lasts forever. Life will thrive forever. And from these people, as part of that promise, will come God's men. That one king that will restore this world. And God has a great track record of working out His promise. Again and again, just read Genesis, again and again, God makes good on His word. Even in this section, just starting at chapter 37, we see God's men in one of Jacob's sons called Joseph. He rules over the known world. He saves many from a deadly famine. And not just that, Joseph's family, Jacob's family actually, who were once separated, now they are reunited. They enjoy the very best that this world has to offer in Egypt. They are fruitful, they multiply. So God doesn't just make promises, He keeps promises. But as we come to this last chapter, our reading for today, we get two deaths and two funerals. And right in the middle is a reminder of all the evil, all the human evil that has unfolded against God's man, Joseph. So at first glance, it looks like an anticlimactic ending to a foundational book like Genesis. But can I say that the author of Genesis really wants his readers to be supremely confident in God's promise. So if you look at uh, the handout for today, the outline for today, we are told that first, he makes good his promise to Jacob. That's point number one. Point three, he makes good his promise to the rest of his people. So, Jacob, his people. And right in the middle, right at that core, is a God so sovereign for the good of his people. This is the supreme assurance for all who would face an evil and dying world in the days to come. And that's where we will spend most of our time today. So this is point one on your outline. God works out His promise to Jacob despite death. So in Genesis chapter 49, verse 1, Jacob, sorry, not verse 1, uh, verse 28, Jacob is the one who leads his family to look into the future. My dear family, this is what's going to happen in the days to come. So Jacob's looking to the future, but in a slightly strange way because he seems morbidly obsessed with death. I'll take a look at verse 29. Chapter 49, verse 29. Jacob's engrossed with planning his funeral. He's especially concerned where he's to be buried. And so he says to Joseph, the cave in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Memre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought as a burying place. 
Bury me there where they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah, where they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. Bury me where I myself buried Leah, the field and the cave that is in it, bought from the Hittites. Did you get all of that, Joseph? Write it down. Input the postal code and unit number into your Google Maps. And then Jacob dies. Twice we are told that Jacob is gathered to his people in verse, 49, uh, in verse 29 and then in verse 33. You just cannot miss the emphasis. All of these burial plans and then death arise. But what's all this about? I think these verses are about Jacob's identity. He's dying, his eyes are dim, but he sees clearly who he is. He is Jacob. He is one of God's people under God's promise. Everything that God's people are to have, Jacob will also have. God has said earlier to him, I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. So even in death, Jacob is to be with his people, not with the Egyptians. Even in death, Jacob is to be in the land that God promised his people, not in Egypt. Not even when his address, his current address is number two, Goshen, Sentosa Cove. So death does not change who he is. And more importantly, death will not change God's promise to him. So Jacob dies, knowing full well who he is, who he belongs to. He knows full well what's coming because he's under God's promise to the very end. So when Jacob draws his last breath, this is what happens. Look with me at chapter 50, verse 2. 50, verse 2. So Jacob gets a Pharaoh's funeral. Imagine that. Prime Minister Joseph sees to the arrangements. Royal doctors, they come and prepare his body. They embalm his body over 40 days. And the people of Pharaoh, they weep for him 70 days. And then in verse 4, chapter 50, verse 4, Jacob gets to go home. Pharaoh lets God's people go to bring Jacob's body home. A great company, they leave Egypt and then they head for the land of promise. It's a procession that's made out of more than just Jacob's family. In verse 7, that whole procession is accompanied by a horde of Pharaoh's servants and officials, as well as the formidable Egyptian army. So much of Egypt goes up with them that when the procession mourns, that place becomes known as the mourning of the Egyptians. All of this, a really small teaser of the Exodus, the next book in the Bible, a reminder that we were always meant to start with Genesis and then continue reading beyond. But now, Jacob's funeral is no less grand than the royal funerals of our time. It's way more significant, in fact. Because the author uses Jacob's burial to make a very important point. Jacob's last wish is not to lie down with other pharaohs. He wants to be buried in a cave, but in a piece of God's promised land. And God delivers. God works out His promise to Jacob despite death. Jacob leaves Egypt, Egypt and he reaches Canaan. Even in death, 
Jacob participates in God's promise. Even in death, Jacob reaches home. Jacob's final act, final description in the book shows us that death will not hinder God from working out His promise to His people. In death, Jacob adds an important line to God's track record. This is a God who keeps His promise despite human death. And so Jacob exits the theatre. The rest of the cast, they step forward. The spotlight shifts to Jacob's sons. The sons that are made up of Joseph and the brothers. Now this family, Jacob's family, the sons, they also look to the future. But for Joseph's brothers, their future is not filled with assurance. In fact, it is a future filled with fear. Uh, let's see why we point to on, on the outline. Look at me please at chapter 50, verse 15. Verse 15. The brothers say, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. They know full well that they have done great evil to Joseph before. All of it is described for us in chapter 37. And while there's reconciliation in the story, the issue of forgiveness has not yet come up. They are terrified by the possibility of payback. It's like a gang movie. So the previous mafia head, he dies, and then a new boss takes over. And in the space of one night, you see a series of hit jobs, multiple assassinations, because those who ill-treated the new boss gets, get systematically removed, one by one. So the brothers, they know they have to do something. They send a messenger to Joseph to soften things up in case. Okay? They confess their evil. They, <coughs> they beg for forgiveness. Then they themselves show up and they bow before Joseph face down. This is a picture of genuine repentance, admitting evil, pleading for forgiveness before God's men. And it's a matter of life and death. Uh, in verse 17, tears well up in Joseph's eyes. Um, in Genesis, Joseph weeps seven times. And every time he weeps, it's a bittersweet moment. Uh, when, he, when his evil brothers speak about their guilt, he weeps. When his youngest brother, Benjamin, appears before him alive, he weeps. When Judah, one of the other brothers, offers himself up so that evil will not plague that family further, Joseph weeps. Again, he weeps when he re reconciles with his brothers, when he reunites with his father, and when his father dies, ready to be brought home. Joseph weeps again. These are all bittersweet moments marked by deep pain as well as good. And verse 17 is no different. Joseph sees the big picture and he weeps once more because of the deep pain as well as the good. He knows the evil that his brothers intended toward him. He knows. He felt it. He felt everything that they did to him. His brothers meant everything they did to him. Everything they did, they did as evil against him. But God, God meant it for good. 
That's what Joseph says in verse 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. They planned to erase him from history by handing him over to death. They sold him off like an unwanted thing. Because of them, Joseph goes from son to slave, from his father's house to hardship, from the pastures to the pit. But all of this according to plan. All that the brothers meant as evil, God meant it as well, but for good. Uh, have you ever compared the front and back of a tapestry? The front of a tapestry is pure art. In the hands of a skillful weaver, it displays a beautiful picture, a testimony to incredible artistry and skill. But the back of a tapestry is usually a mess. What is clear on the front is barely just an outline on the back. In fact, usually it's an ugly web of different coloured threads covered in knots and all sorts of loose ends. But surely, surely the skilled weaver intends for the messy back to produce something beautiful in front. And here in Genesis, God is the master weaver, an architect of a grand master plan. Joseph looks back, then he looks front, and he sees that in all this human evil, at the back, God meant it for good. Verse 20 is the clearest statement that we have in Genesis that God's hidden hand is behind everything. Everything that we see in the life of Jacob's family, every dream, every interpretation, every plot, every plan, life in the pit, life in the prison, every rejection of God's man, all of it, so that one man will rule and all others bow. The brother's intention is evil, God's intention good. God positions his men to save history, raised him from the pit to the palace as the Egyptian prime minister, to rescue his people from certain death, to grow them into a nation, to keep his promise. Uh, here I have a question for you. Exactly how big and powerful must God be to pull all of this off? Every detail, every twist, every turn. The tiniest deviation, the slightest loss of control, and everything goes wrong. But God's behind the scenes, in control of every scene. Nothing is careless, random, or an experiment. Nothing is coincidence, luck, or fate. God's much bigger, much more powerful than all these things. From the beginning, He meant it for good. And He pulls everything off according to plan. So exactly how big and powerful must God be? The answer is very. God must be sovereign. Like in the song that we sang, God must be sovereign over human evil. Uh, at this part of the talk, I need to make a short pit stop. The story is not done. I would like to come back to it. 
But when we say God is sovereign over human evil, it always raises this question. If God is completely in control, doesn't that make Him responsible for evil? It's a good question, a real question, a painful one, even for some of us. For those who experience and know too keenly the effects of evil. So I'm going to take just three minutes to address it briefly and then come back to our text. I can't promise to answer everything, but I would like to check further. We can after this gathering. Now, if God is completely in control, doesn't that make Him responsible for evil? Doesn't that make Him a monster? But the answer is no. The Bible as a whole, which is all of the things that God wants us to know, never tells us the source of evil. We're not told where it comes from. We cannot work it out. We're not told things that are too big for us to see. Nor are we told things that are additional to what we need to be saved. The origin of evil is outside our need to know boundaries. But one thing is clear. What the Bible does insist is that God is absolute good. Evil cannot come from a God who's absolute goodness. And in Genesis, the foundational book of everything that we need to know, evil is attributed to human hearts. It says in Genesis 6-5, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. But God continues to spare people. He continues to bring life. So evil is evil. God is good. And God takes, He uses evil even to accomplish His good purposes. So pay attention to who does what in verse 20. Pay attention. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. God is in control of what evil people do. He means it for good. They are responsible. They meant it for evil. But God is never morally involved. He never endorses sin. And the brothers, they know this. Did you notice that not once did they point the finger at God? In fact, they confess, pointing the finger at themselves in verse 17. Uh, here's how D.A. Carson puts it. Both, both acted to bring about this event. But while the evil in it must be traced back to the brothers and no further, the good must be traced back to God. God is so in control that their evil is turned around for good. And now back to verse 20. We're done with the pit stop. God is sovereign over human evil for good, but there are times where well-intentioned people come up and try to comfort us during difficult times. God will bring something good out of this. Trust God. Something good is right around the corner. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a relationship. A health problem. Or something that we really, really want. But then it doesn't come. And then it leaves a bitter taste in the mouth. We are left with heavy hearts. What is the good that our sovereign God is working out? Where is the good that the Bible talks about? I look again at verse 20. God's working out a really 
specific good. He has a specific purpose that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God's good here is to rescue His people, save them from death, and to keep them alive forever. It's a good out of everything that will kill, beginning with Genesis 3. A good despite evil human hearts, a good despite raising our fists at God and His purposes, a good despite a dying world that chokes life out. If God's people are to live, there must be unexpected life for wicked people. Provision must be made for those who are starving for life. A fractured people must be gathered. Evil must be exposed. That leads to repentance. Generations must continue so that the rest of this world may share in what is good. And God's men must rule. So what is this good that our sovereign God is working out? It's that royal promise for a rotten world so that many people should be kept alive. This is God's promise. And so Joseph tells his brothers twice, do not fear. He knows the evil they, they've done to him, but he, God's man, is fully committed to God's purpose. He will continue to provide for them in the famine and for the generations to come. He will keep them alive. God's man offers assurance, a massive assurance to people like us who suffer from this world's evil as well as our own. Comfort and kindness from God's man who saves his people from death. But for now, Joseph also must die. And then the gulf between God's promise and the future of God's people seems to widen. We are at the last point. Please look at me at verse 22. Verse 22. Joseph lives to 110, around 60 more good years for God's people in Egypt. So God is true. God is a promise keeper. The family grows. Generations of children come. More and more people live under that promise. But it appears all good things must end. Even in a book that begins with a beautiful garden, a paradise full of life, a book like that ends with a coffin in Egypt. The sovereign God will work out His promise to His people, but it will be worked out beyond Egypt, beyond the pages of Genesis. So as Joseph is about to die, he looks to the future, just like his forefathers, and his final words are meant to linger on in the hearts of all of God's people. In verse 24, Joseph says, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. To the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, God will surely visit you. Can you hear what Joseph is saying? To all who are God's people, there is a good beyond the present. A good in the days to come, a home. And all of us will be brought home Life with God in His place is coming. A good beyond this Egyptian kind of world is coming. And God's people will really need this assurance. They will soon 
be unwelcome immigrants. They will soon be slaves in their temporary home. In fact, they will suffer in Egypt for 400 years. But God's proven track record means we can be supremely confident that God will bring His people out of Egypt and His people home. Where is home really? It's the land of promise. It's a better country than Egypt will ever be. It will offer a better life than Egypt can ever give. Hebrews 11 verse 6 tells us that these people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph, they all sought this real home. They desired a better country that is a heavenly one. There is a real home for us. Real home is where God's king rules forever, not this world's prime minister, where, as, we, as uh, Brother King Ho was saying just now, where evil, hell, sin, sorrow, darkness and death will not remain. Where life forever with God cannot be shaken. Our God is sovereign over evil. He is a promise maker and He is a promise keeper. So, there's an ultimate good that's coming. He will take His people out of this world into the new one. Let me wrap things up. Genesis is the beginning of an end. Everything that God does is to get His people home. Alive, and forever. But till that day, there is a great gulf between this world and that world. Evil remains real, very real, and evil leads to death. So it's a great gulf filled with dark tunnels, bottomless pits. Hope can evaporate, fear can swallow us up. Among us today, this morning, will be those who know evil and experience evil. Maybe it's the workplace injustice at the hands of those who hold power. Maybe it's the selfishness and betrayal from family and close friends, the last people you expect to hurt you. Then there's the hate and attacks from those who barely know you on social media. The cruelty that comes for just being part of God's people, that's another real evil. For some, perhaps even here, there's incomprehensible suffering, irreparable personal loss. God's people are not spared life in this rotten world. Not now. We are not spared from death, even when sometimes it comes in very painful forms. You will know evil, the pain will come, the tears will flow. You may feel the great gulf too keenly, the great gap between today and that day, between this world and the next. And you may not understand everything. Why? Why God? Why? And the really real struggle is that you may want to give up trusting God's promise and to turn to something else. But good is coming. 
proven at the very beginning of the Bible. Ultimate good for God's people is coming. God makes promises, keeps promises. He's so sovereign over evil. He gathers us to His man, Jesus. He brings us home. Nothing will ever threaten the good, the ultimate good of God's people. So my dear friends, in pain and in tears, we keep on trusting. Among us may also be those who insist on evil. Maybe we enjoy the good things of this world without regard for God. Maybe we enjoy the good things of this world at the expense of others. We depend on the Creator for life, everything that we need for every day, but we would reject Him, reject His promise, reject His people even, and His King, that world-restoring King. If we continue to insist on evil, to think, feel, and act according to what we want, we are responsible, and we will not be part of the good that's coming. There will be no end to that gulf between you and that world to come. There's no gaming the system, not when it comes to a God who is so sovereign over evil. If we are like that, will we come before God's King, Jesus? Will we admit our evil, turn to Him for forgiveness in this matter of life and death? Let me end with where we started. You're on the armchair, writing your last letter for the generations to come. What would you say? Uh, this is what I might write. Dear family and friends, I've reached the end. Looking back, I can say this. The best that this world has to offer will never be enough. Because this is a rotten world. You will know much evil like I did. You will know your own evil like I did. In those dark and difficult times, I didn't always know what God was doing, but He meant it for good. It's always in His hand, under control. It will always be in His hand. We see this most clearly when God's King Jesus came. God's good versus every evil intention. No contest, not even close. Jesus died and rose to life again, crushing evil and death for good. And now Jesus rules forever, even as His people are gathered to Him. So the great gulf that begins in Genesis, the gap between this world and the next is getting smaller as you read this. God intends ultimate good. He will bring us home. So there's no need to be anxious. Less reason to fear. Every reason to trust God's royal promise for this rotten world. The only gulf that will remain is the one that God had, had always intended from the beginning. It is the gulf between light and darkness. The great and final separation between God's good purposes and this world's evil. For in the beginning was the word, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for reminding us that you are the sovereign creator, the one who purposed and worked such that light is forever separated from darkness. And it's not just physical light in the darkness, but life-giving light to dead men like us. Father, we thank you for being so good, for working out good, even when we were evil, even when we are evil, and this world is rotten. We pray that we will keep on trusting you, beginning now, in pain, and for the pain that will come. Help us to not be shocked, even when we feel the effects of this rotten world, but help us to keep on clinging to you, the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.